It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 189, The Prophet Isaiah and the Suffering Servant. Hezekiah would reign for another 15 years after his healing. He was childless at the time of his healing, and three years later he would only have one son, whose name was Manasseh, an appropriate name considering it was the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh that represented northern Israel, which was no more. Maybe his son was to redeem the rest of the country, or will he be like his namesake? an idol-worshipping family leading a country. If you know the story of Manasseh, you'll know the sad answer to that question. Hezekiah would go on to compile much of what we consider the Old Testament today, at least to his time period, while Daniel would do much more later. Hezekiah would rule in justice and do more great things as king until he dies 15 years after his healing. Assyria would reel from the visit of the angel of death, but it would not collapse because there was no real strong enough force out there to replace Assyria yet. But there will be eventually. The successors after Sennacherib and his sons would rally and piece back together the Assyrian armed forces with great success. But in the life of Hezekiah, no one dared challenge the nation of Judah. We have to imagine Hezekiah had unbelievable treasures in his storehouses, that he replenished the gold that was given to the Assyrians and was given much more when they looted the abandoned camp of the Assyrians outside Lachish. It's a tribute to Hezekiah when we consider how some of the Proverbs speak of what he did. Proverbs 25 has the following header. These are more Proverbs of Solomon compiled by the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah. What is that scripture? Matthew 13, 52. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. The kingdom of heaven is like one who receives treasure of old and new. Hezekiah had to comb through the treasures of literature of Solomon to pick out his favorite additional proverbs. This means he was a man of learning and study. Isn't that amazing? There must have been treasures back then in the libraries of old before civilizations fell. Imagine that library of Alexandria before it was burned. There must have been something similar in Jerusalem. The treasures must have been truly remarkable. Hezekiah had these treasures of antiquity at his disposal. There must have been an incredible library of Jerusalem in the day. The wisdom of the wisest of kings, his words, Solomon, at your fingertips. Amazing. Consider how some kings didn't even visit the library of Solomon. All the more kudos to the king who was wise enough to compile the Proverbs that even Solomon didn't think were as special as the rest. So before we move on from Hezekiah, we have to repeat that tribute the Bible gave him. 2 Kings 18.5 Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. 
There was no king like him before or after. What a compliment. So we'll do a survey later on the greatest kings in Judah. And it'll be interesting where Hezekiah lands. So the prophet Isaiah will outlive Hezekiah like so many other kings. And now he's probably in his 60s or 70s. And he's really getting up there by the standards of his day. And yes, he has his clothes back on. After Hezekiah's death, he has a whole series of visions. Yet, even before Hezekiah's death, there is many prophecies that Isaiah gives. Here's the first of his prophecies that comes immediately after the destruction of Sennacherib. The country requires substantial healing, and here is God's answer. Healing now and in the future, even at the end of the age, and then we get a taste of our New Testament times. Isaiah 40, Comfort, comfort for my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed and that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall be made level and rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Hmm. Sounds a lot like John the Baptist. The book of Isaiah is full of these verses. It's like hidden away in the book of Isaiah is line after line of the future. Isaiah continues along this vein, speaking to the weaknesses of nations against God's great glory. And it's like he's time traveling, but he fails to tell you what time and age he's speaking from. It's a word about the future. It could be tomorrow, next week, next month, a year, or 500 years from now. About the time of Jesus, maybe a word about today, some war in Israel that might happen in a few years, the end of the world, the millennium reign, any time. Accurate and right on, easy to understand after the fact, but impossible to figure out until after it happens, unless you are a totally awesome student of prophecy. That's Isaiah for you. So Isaiah's next prophecy is about 150 years from this timeline that we're in. And it's startling how he goes to as far as to prophesy of a secular king and his empire. Isaiah 44, 24. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by himself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, whoever throws the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem it shall be inhabited, the towns of Judah they shall be rebuilt, and of their ruins I will restore them, who says to the watery deep be dry and I will dry up your streams, who says of Cyrus he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. It continues into Isaiah 45, indicating the dividers of the chapters of the Bible weren't always so inspired, as they should be, for the division between 45 and 44 is in the wrong place. Isaiah 45, this is what the Lord says to his anointed, 
to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him, to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him, so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor that you may acknowledge me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all things. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let the salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. It continues. This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker. Concerning things to come, do you question me about children or give me orders about the work of my hands? Is it Is it I who made the earth and created mankind in it? My own hand stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry host. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness, and I will make all his ways straight. I will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. The products of Egypt and merchandise of Cush and all those Sabaeans, they will come over to you and will be yours. They will trudge behind you, coming over to you and change. They will bow down before you and plead with you, saying, Surely God is with you, and there is no other. There is no other God. This is what's going on, and this is what's going to make the story of Cyrus so much fun. He's prophesied, which means the Persian Empire was prophesied, which makes it so rich. But this is for another time. Maybe six months from now, we cover the Persian Empire and how God had it in mind, its birth, ascent, and world power status. And the story of Cyrus is just going to be awesome. Isaiah goes on to prophesy the end of Babylon, which is in the days of Nebuchadnezzar as well, and an end to the the age and even, even the destruction of Babylon that appears to be in the time of Revelation. And that's another story. And by the time we get to the back half of Isaiah, the tone changes from prophecies about the future and kings and nations to a new chapter, the suffering servant. I get the feel this occurs after the death of Hezekiah, for Isaiah has no hope in his son, but instead looks to another, the king of kings. He looks heavenly, catching glimpses of that heavenly future and the savior of the world. It's a most remarkable transition, as it comes most casual. He talks about kings and nations, and now he's prophesying about a man. Not an ordinary man, but a man who puts his back out to be beaten, who is chastised and scorned, until we get to Isaiah 53, where we see the reason for this man, what he purchased, and the reason for the culmination of the entirety of the New Testament. I'm going to read the entirety of Isaiah 53, since it's the true power of the cross. Entire books are written on this one chapter, but it speaks and profoundly tells us 
um, the divine exchange that occurred at the cross. Isaiah 53, who has believed our message and to whom his arm of the Lord has been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, a man familiar with pain. Like one whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took upon our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was cursed for our inequities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the inequity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their inequities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah goes on to prophesy about the thirsty and how they'll be filled. He speaks to true fasting, and he arrives at Isaiah 61, which is an awesome section. Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captains, and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We'll hear this verse again in Nazareth, read aloud by a certain son of Joseph. Isaiah continues, He speaks to the end of the age. And just to keep you guessing to the very, very end, we have the last prophecies of Isaiah It's not about the suffering servant or the rise and fall of nations. It's the end of the world. Isaiah 65, 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live at his years. 
The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered cursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by God, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. To conclude this episode, we've got to cover the next 12 years or so of Isaiah's life. Manasseh will go on to rule the kingdom of Judah and will tear down the institutions his father built and make Judah a disgusting place of idol worship and hedonism. Manasseh will turn out to be the exact opposite of his father Hezekiah. It will become a dark, dark as any place on the earth, and prophets will be killed and innocent blood will be shed on a regular basis. Isaiah will not survive this reign of terror and will become a victim of it. So for 12 years, he actually um, lives in this time frame um, under Manasseh, who's just turned Jerusalem into, you know, hell on earth, basically. And, and I ask, you know, how did he survive this after so many, so much he's gone through? Well, Isaiah learned a valuable lesson we all need to learn. He went from living under the reign of one of the greatest kings to ever live and being in one of the world's greatest dramas to all of a sudden being under one of the worst kings in human history. The answer is the hope of our calling and the way to walk out and live in the spirit always. And I have to believe Isaiah was not only forced to, but required to keep his eyes on God in order to keep his sanity in the upcoming days of terror in Jerusalem. It was this seeking out of God that probably led to his encounters and his learnings and prophecies about Jesus. What do you do when trouble and hardship and struggles are before you and your emotions are out of hand, or when you're struggling against temptation that is everywhere before you? The answer really is the only answer, is to keep your eyes on God and to run to him, and to keep your eyes on the only thing that really matters. It's Jesus. Isaiah clearly faced God every day, and there was no other way for him to, to, to live in a normal manner, you know, with the rational reactions to the, to the sin and the devastation around him that he's going to later experience uh, would just be fear, anxiety, concern, worry, you know, it, he has to face God to make it through what he does for 12 years. When all chaos reigned around him, when brothers were put to the sword, when the kingdom was torn from them, when foreigners and idols rested in the holy places, when incense burned to idols polluting the atmosphere, he would work in the flesh, that's good, his option, or fight in the spirit. It was here. It was in this place that Isaiah sought God, sought his words, and found the hand of the man 
that would redeem all. Isaiah watched with horror in his heart. Every day he watched the kingdom of God be destroyed in Judah, and his only personal relief was to gaze upon God himself. It's the only explanation how he survived another 12 years or so. He gazed upon Jesus himself in the midst of chaos. In the thick of Manasseh's disgusting reign of terror, Isaiah was confronted by Manasseh, and he receives his death sentence, and he is tortured and cut in two by a wooden saw. This is actually referred to in Hebrews 11.37 in the New Testament. Tortured until the end, and still faithful and prophesying to the very end. No matter what you're going through, no matter what, there is the face of God in the midst of chaos, and he is there for you. This is just another lesson that we learn from Isaiah's life. And I think Isaiah continues to have revelations of Jesus for these 12 years is incredible. He truly lived a most remarkable life, outliving kings and the rise and fall of nations, and his encounters with heaven and the Son of Man are staggering. To imagine one man had this much experience in one life is breathtaking. Isaiah also proves when the flesh dies, the spirit carries on the work of our hands. And all the words and prophecies that Isaiah issued echo all throughout human history. When his body died, his words lived on. Isaiah's prophecies will live on forever, even to the end of the age. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com. Share the Facebook page or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.